Pastor, yeah. a question. Mm. What is your desire at Christmas? Sweet Dogs, we are new to Who. Whether you don't know the old or only the new. Or need an entry point into classic Doctor Who. We're the chaps with suggestions for you. I am Dan. I'm Stephen. Oh, well, Merry Christmas, Sweet Dogs. Merry Christmas. So we've got a bit of a departure from our regular scheduled programming this time because it is Christmas. Bit of a Christmas treat for you to unwrap. Yeah, so basically we've got uh, all of our guests over the last year or so, almost all of them anyway, uh, and we've asked them over that time what their all-time favourite classic Doctor Who stories ever are. All-time favourite or guilty pleasure. Or guilty pleasure, yes. Yeah, not so much like, you know, the sort of celebrated um, universally fan fan favoured episodes. No, no, the ones that mean most to them, I yeah. guess, for whatever reason, and, and perhaps uh, explaining those reasons as well. So sit back and relax on this Christmas day as we bring you, well, let's have a look. Look, under the Christmas tree, what have we got first? Well, let's, get, let's do let's, let's unwrap the big one first, right? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> we have Paul Cornell here, the, the wonderful Paul Cornell. Um, Paul, could you please tell us your personal all-time favourite classic Doctor Who story ever? Well, my favourite as we speak is <laughs> Delta and the Bannerman. Oh. <laughs> now, people assume that um, I'm being confrontational or taking the mickey about this, but I'm really not. It's very good. Um, and what particularly appealed to me was that after so many years of darkness and violence and mm. really the ethos of Doctor Who being rather lost, here's this ray of sunlight, um, <laughs> a happy story um, with lots and lots of real humanity and love to it that um, offers actually a beacon for the way forward back to success for Doctor Who mm. yeah. in that... Um, suddenly we're in a recognisable past that viewers of the show who are in the mainstream and who are not fans will immediately understand where they are and what the values are and what's going on and may indeed remember this from their own lives for the sure. older people in the audience. Um, we, um, everything is immediately more relatable. It's not about um, you know mercenaries who only have surnames killing each other with the Doctor being barely involved. It's about <laughs> Sylvester McCoy hugging a guitar during a dance and talking about love. Yeah. Um, and this is so much more like the modern series. You know, Delta and the Bannermen is kind of where Russell T. Davis gets invented. Um, <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> and um, it's... It's got a. It, it wrestles with where the balance is going to be between threat and charm. Mm. So perhaps it is slightly too. Um, you know, they blow up a bus full of uh, people, True. 
and they can't quite land the moment because they don't know how how much they want to play with mm. violence. And Don Henderson is who's a great actor has decided to play it as a absolute down the middle villain. And uh, I'm not sure whether or not that should have those choices should have been affected by the feel of the rest of the production. Um, there's a few too many characters, as there often are in Cartmel, because um, you know there are lots of interesting things to do, and they find lots of interesting people to do them, and there's perhaps too much to fit into the space. Mm-hmm. But all in all, this is the way forward, <laughs> and somebody's got it, <laughs> and. And, you know, this is something that gets developed much more in the next two seasons. And um, so, yeah, I think this was, uh, at the time I saw it, it was just like a such a relief, yeah. is how I would put Beautifully it. Like you can, put. can breathe again. But we're out of, you yeah. know, we're out of the, out of space. We're out of all the doom and gloom and, the, and, and endless, they would grit. all this endless gunfights and, yeah. and just um, um, dread and, and horrible things happening to people. And we're finally... Somewhere a bit lighter, especially with McCoy, who's just like so good at playing it, playing it light. Especially mm. in season twenty twenty four. Yeah, that's so true. And he finds he he finds his first dark notes here. He finds mm. sadness and regret, mm. and thoughts about his own family. Mm. And you know um, when he says, "Love has never been known for its <laughs> oh and, and, and he's thinking off about something. We'll never know what. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> And this is a this is um, this is a Bonnie Langford too, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And I've just um, yeah. just because uh, I've been rewatching some Colin Baker and some early McCoy recently, and I've just kind of, I've kind of come down on the on the side of Bonnie Langford after a long time. <laughs> like you know, I think she's simply doing her best yeah, throughout. Definitely, yeah. I, I think she's got very little to work with early on. Yeah. Um, and here, when she's got um, a Delta to um, talk to, and um, yeah. You know, uh, somebody to 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 fight for and um, something to represent. Um, you know, she's especially in this atmosphere. Um, you know, you can see what that character might have been. Yeah. Um, you know, she's sort of a proto ace here in a lot of ways. It's uh, it's really interesting because they're thinking about replacing her with Ray here, mm. and Ray doesn't quite land it in terms of a companion, but she still gets much more interesting stuff to do than previously it's just nice to watch Bonnie Langford again after so many years and be relieved that she's not what I remembered I've always sort of written her off and then get to watch mm. her she's charming like she's fun to watch it's a charming story depending, that's why yeah. depending on what she's been given but like yeah she's fun to watch yeah it's great well thank you Paul that's eloquently put again and we really appreciate you telling us your personal all time so favourite classic Doctor Who story ever thank you and Merry Christmas <laughs> <laughs> and to you <laughs> All right, that was so. That was Paul Cornell. We um, we recorded Seeds of Doom with him back in February. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Definitely, great. I can't believe we still got him on. Like even after all this time, I have to pinch myself. Yeah. Paul, thank you very much, and a Merry Christmas to you. Uh, let's go and have a look at what the next one is. Yeah, what grab one. Okay, well here's this box. Let's see what's inside. It looks Please like it's got two presents inside. <laughs> so we have Nathan Bottomley here from Flight Through Entirety. And Nathan, if you could please oblige us, what is your personal all-time favourite classic Doctor Who story ever? Well, I think the only correct answer to this question uh, is City of Death. Oh, so glad to hear you say that. One yeah. we've already done, so yes. that's, that seems, uh, gets a tick of approval there already. Yeah, definitely. It really is just so extraordinarily funny. Mm. So you've got the TARDIS team of Tom and Lala, and they're getting oh. on. Um, yeah. And... <laughs> 
they're both so smart like every single line that they say is incredibly funny yeah. um, it's a plot that is a puzzle box mm. Uh, it's so familiar to us now. You know, it's impossible to remember a time when we didn't know what the twist was. <laughs> but if you imagine coming at it for the first time, it's amazingly clever the way yeah. things fit together. Mm. I think the two people who do that are Douglas Adams and Stephen Moffat. Yeah. They both write great jokes. Mm. They both do incredibly yeah. complicated clever clever plots and it just makes you feel smart watching it <laughs> yeah, just the think. idea of the of the um the jaggeroth whose whose personality is split through time but exists kind of simultaneously to to himself mm. that's such a, a crazy and brilliant i love that concept and yeah. i don't think it's ever done before or since in doctor who i love it and and the way that the stakes are escalated as well mm. the way that it actually becomes all of human history <laughs> and the fact that tom works that out before we do <laughs> is just so wonderful of <laughs> And of course, you've got the the first overseas location shoes, mm. and you know people complain that there's too much of it and that it's self indulgent. But those people are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's so lovely yeah. and so warm having these two people. Um, these two clever, lovely people, hand in hand, running through Paris. I just don't know how you could possibly complain about that. Even if they weren't hand in hand, it would be magical. But the fact that they are, it seems odd to the story. But like, it's I love it. It just makes it so much fun, and it's so it's love. Like I said, it's lovely, and we don't always get lovely around that time. Do you remember the the scene when they're in the metro, um, and? Romana asks the doctor, where are we going? And the doctor says, are you talking philosophically or geographically? And we're going to lunch. Do you remember um, Lala saying, we're base, yum, yum? I just think it's, you know, so spectacular. It's so delightfully, delightfully fun. And then when they, later on, when they're sort of uh, dealing with danger or they're at the the Count's house or wherever they are, wherever they are, they're, they're always looking at each other and joking they're, co- they're conspirators mm. and they're the smartest people in the room yeah. and they're just they're really not too worried really till later about what's about the danger they're just having fun together in the yeah. room and it's so much fun to watch well in fact that that very first scene where they meet the Count who is just such a brilliant Doctor yeah. Who villain so <laughs> marvellous camp and witty and you've got Julian Glover and you've got um You've got Tom Baker in a room whipping at each <laughs> yes. other. They're so brilliant. And it's Douglas Adams' yeah. dialogue. I mean, what more could you want? Yeah. It's all your Christmases come at once, I think. <laughs> yeah, there's a beautiful joy to it. And I think you're right. It's the confluence of all of those things. The Paris location shoot, Tom and Lala falling in love, Douglas Adams, Julian Glover, and it's the imperious Tom Baker. Here he is, I guess, at a point in the show where he owns the show, really, for all intents and mm. purposes. It's not that he's just the Doctor and has been for six years. He knows more than anyone else in terms of how to make Doctor Who. Mm. And maybe there are you know, some stories where that he takes it too far and it does suffer, but here it's just a perfect storm where it all comes yeah, together. firing on all cylinders. And yep. there's so many little things that... We don't always get that they're they're sort of playing tricks with time, which we don't always get to see, and it's fun, like the, with the with the paintings in the cellar, yeah. and um, and even uh, the fact that that Scaroth is really he's just trying to survive and get and get back to being whole, but he doesn't care about the the fact that he doesn't care about the human race being destroyed is kind of a side thing for him. He's just uh, he's just trying to survive, and that makes you like him a little bit more. Plus the fact that it's Julian Glover, like, who is <laughs> yeah. just terrific. Yeah. So much fun yeah, to and a great father apparently. Yeah, I'm never gonna, <laughs> never gonna get away with this from this one. I'm gonna check my facts. So we have Brendan Jones with us here from Flight Through Entirety. 
Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Brendan. No worries. Thank you for having me. So we're going to ask you, as we have asked our other guests, for your personal all-time favourite classic Doctor Who story ever. What is it? Right, mine's a little unusual. It doesn't come from my favourite Doctor, who is Patrick Troughton. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is the Androids of Tara. That's the Key to Time story? Key to Time, yep. uh, Story number four. (laughs) Season 16. Season 16. Uh, And, yeah, I... I've, n- I've never heard of anyone else who puts it at the top of their lists, you know. It ends up usually in the middle of lists. It's in the middle area of the last few sure, dwims. Sure. Yeah. So tell us why it's your favourite. Um, I just love the lightness of it. Mm. And unlike some other Graham Williams stories, I think it very well balances the threat that has to be in Doctor Who stories with the humour mm-hmm. and the lightness of touch. Um on, on a very facetious level, it has four Mary Tams! Oh, I'm in heaven. <laughs> Steve's got a long and very well-publicised love of Mary Tam. Um, so you have Mary Tam playing Romana. You have Mary Tam playing a murderous android duplicate of Romana. <laughs> you have Mary Tam playing the Princess Strella. And you have Mary Tam playing a murderous android duplicate of the Princess Strella. Just to play it four ways. <laughs> now, the joyful thing is... I'm, I'm currently um, not on mic with any of the other members of Flight Through Entirety who <laughs> might say uncharitable things like Mary Tam uh, takes a sabbatical from acting for a year when she does Doctor Who. Lies. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know what? The, her delineation between the four performances, it's subtle, but it's there. <laughs> uh, what makes the Androids of Tara for me is... So on the wider level, you've got... Tom Baker and Mary Tam having a lot of fun. She has settled into the role by this point. You have a wonderful villain in the um, in the form of Peter Jeffrey as <laughs> Count Grendel of Gracht. <laughs> um, Peter Jeffrey, of course, was one of those actors in the sixties and seventies who was often playing villains. Mm. Um, you have Simon Lack who had appeared previously in Doctor Who as Swordmaster Zadek, and you see wonderful scenes of Tom Baker desperately trying to make him corpse and break character and love, (laughs) and it never happens. (laughs) You've got Neville Jason as Prince Reinhardt, and there's a wonderful bit because there's an android Prince Reinhardt as well. Pretty much if you're a major character in this story, chances are you're going to have an android of you running around at some point. <laughs> and I, I love mistaken identity and body swap stories yeah. in science fiction. Um, so ne- Neville Jason, of course, plays a very sort of kind Disney-style prince. But there's a part where his android duplicate is talking and um, his his swords master and trusted friend says, isn't he a bit more intelligent than the real prince? And the doctor <laughs> says, well, of course he is. I programmed him. <laughs> um, there, there's all those witty, there's a load of witty lines all the way through. It's David Fisher again. Yeah. Um, we've, at the time of recording, he's recently passed away. Mm. And he wrote four really brilliant Doctor Who stories. And something he attempts to do in the three stories he writes, which are set off Earth, is he tries to create a culture. And here the conceit is that the reason we have a sort of fairy tale like culture, but with androids, is because there was this plague 200 years ago. So androids were built to uh, take the place of the people who died and perform the work and what have you. It may not stand up to much scrutiny, but <laughs> this is this is Doctor Who as a fairy tale. It has all those trappings. Yeah. 
Um, it's certainly not perfect. I really don't like the death of Madame Lamia mm. in the story. Um, I think it's well handled in the scene in which it happens, and Grendel actually shows some genuine affection for her. Um, but later on, it's all about the fact that she can't finish the work for him now, and people don't really comment on her death after that, and I think that's an oversight, especially because she had some great scenes with Romana earlier where when the Romana character was introduced, she doesn't... She is kind of Vulcan. She she just trusts to logic and science and whatnot, but here she has a very honest discussion about love and being used by people yeah. with Madame Lamia and so it makes Ma- it makes Lamia into this tragic character um, very well played Cheers too by Lois Baxter who has also given a few performances for Big Finish oh. uh, in audios like Circular Time um, on the script itself just so many witty lines and witty scenes I think my favourite scene in the whole thing though um Classic Doctor Who didn't always give character development to long-running characters. They were sometimes the same as when they walked into the TARDIS in their first story to when they walked out afterwards. And that's not a criticism. That's just how television was made then. The softening of Romana's character probably came about because Mary Tam... It wouldn't surprise me if she said, look, I find it very difficult to play someone who has no emotional reaction." The scene where the Doctor comes to rescue her and starts the sword fight, and at the beginning he's fooling about and pretty much being fought into a corner, but then he has this look on his face and he breaks out <laughs> and he's a better swordsman than <laughs> Grendel of Grach. And for some reason we just cut to this shot of Mary Tam as Romana in awe. And I like to think the reason for that is it's Romana kind of going, hold on, this guy actually knows what he's <laughs> <Yeah>. doing. <laughs> Um, it is just such a light, summary, enjoyable story. Mm. Um, Dudley Simpson doing the music completely um. embraces the fairy tale aesthetic. <laughs> Despite the fact that she is in the role of a fairy tale princess, Mary Tamas Romana is still sort of stropping around the set, kind of, <laughs> you can't keep me here, I'm going to escape. And she does. <laughs> um, she has that brilliant bit on the horse where she's just like, Go on, start! Start! Where's the clutch? (laughs) She has no idea. Um, Yeah, that's the thing. It is my favourite story. I would never say it is the best Doctor Who story. That's fine. Uh, But it is... When I think of, hey, I want a story to put me in a feel-good mood, I'll go watch this. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, just... Fast forwarding straight to the end, there's that bit of where's K9? And poor thing is trapped in a boat in the middle of the moat of the castle. Yes. It's a Scooby Doo ending! <laughs> <laughs> but it works because of Mary Tam, Tom Baker, and John Leeson. Mm. And also um, uh, the director Michael Hayes just does all this so well, who also does City of Death next year. Um, yeah, it is just such an enjoyable story. And aside from the way in which the characters react to the death of Madame Lamia, I can't really fault it. I, I think you've hit so many good points there. It is a beautiful lyrical story, I think I've said on the podcast before. For me, it's actually Shakespearean. And so it feels like a Shakespearean comedy. And one of the 
I suppose, key aspects of a Shakespearean comedy is that there's always a hint of autumn. And in this case, it is the Lamia subplot, I think. And Mm. apart from that, we have a beautiful summary story, as you say. Um, I I adore it. I love it. I understand what you're saying, that it's never going to be a top ten. But it's just a feel-good Doctor Who story in a way that I think I have a similar reaction to stories like um, Castrovalva, for instance, which is Mm. Peter Mm. Davison's Mm. first one. It's light there's something a little beautiful and lyrical and poetic about it and that's very much the case with the androids of Tara. There's not a lot of lightness in that cutie time series anyway except I mean Pirate Planet's got a lot of humour but it's still pretty dark. There is yeah, dark yeah. humour you're yeah. right yeah. yeah and yeah Ribos Operation has a lot of has a lot of humour and then sort of sure. the graph of Indicay comes in to smash <laughs> all that <laughs> up <laughs> and it, it's very effective and yeah Stone, Stones of Blood has well, stones that drink blood. <laughs> yeah. um, and Power of Kroll is very humorless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's nice to get a breath, you know, yeah. like in the middle of it. Armageddon yeah. Factory is about Armageddon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, oh, gosh. As, as Mary Tam herself put it on part six of the Armageddon Factor commentary when the credits start rolling, she says, that was almost as knackering as making the Armageddon Factor. <laughs> I love her so much. <laughs> Ah, easy, Steve. Well, while we're here, Steve, why don't you tell us... Let's just indulge ourselves. Why don't you tell us why you love um, Rary Tam so much as Romana? Well, I, I guess I may not get a chance to actually talk about this officially <laughs> on the podcast, so here we are at the end. Uh, and I guess the reason why is... Um, okay, apart from the fact that I'm totally in love with Mary Tam as, a, as an actress... <laughs> neither here nor there. No, it's neither here nor there. I think it sort of... Um, relates back to this point that what we have with the Doctor and Romana are the two smartest people in the universe, never mind the room, and they riff off one another beautifully. And there's a particular contrast, particularly in the first two, three, four episodes, um, stories rather, of this season, where there's such different characters. The Doctor's bohemian and out-of-the-box sort of thinking, whereas Romana's very much a product of the Time, Time Lord Academy. And I think, you know, what you have on one hand is, is the Doctor as a kind of... Um, gosh, almost sort of like a, 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 a Hermes-type Greek god character against Mary Tam's Athena. And I love the interplay between the two of them as a result. Yeah, yeah. It's For me, it's the fact that she is constantly giving him crap. Yeah. <laughs> and it's Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, yes. which is what they were going for, ah. Tom, and, uh, Tom and Mary. Um because people have given him crap before, but they're on equal footing in this. In this yeah, situation. yeah, exactly. And the thing is, you you kind of sympathise with what she's saying because what she's saying makes sense. But at the same time, he still gets results, <laughs> <laughs> and that's really evident in the first few scenes of Androids of Tara, where he sends her off to find the key to time. <laughs> and it's interesting because in the first three stories that we've had this season, it's taken them to the very end of the story. Romana going off to find the key to time by herself. Mm-hmm. She's found it before he's even had time to cast off on his little fishing trip. Thank you very much. Of course, she then twists her ankle because this is Doctor Who while being menaced by a child in an unconvincing bear costume. But the point is, she does a better job than him in finding the key to time. Well... Brendan, thanks so much for talking to us about your favourite episode and giving Steve an excuse to wax, wax <laughs> lyrical about I've Romana. I've been waiting all this time. Oh, I could do it all day. <laughs> so thank you very much again. Thank you. 
Oh, that was a lot of fun. That was Brendan and Nathan <laughs> when way back when we did the invasion in March. That was a really fun episode. I love uh, that one. Some of our favorite podcasters of all time. And it was just a real treat to have them on. Thanks so much for coming on with us, guys. Merry Christmas to you. Yeah. Okay. So. Oh, hang on a second. Who's that? Who's that on oh. the horizon? What, where? The figure in white on the hill. Oh. Ugh, that's very eerie and mysterious. Oh, he's gone. Oh. Never mind. I'm sure it was nothing. Yeah. Um, let's open another one. Yeah, let's keep going. All right. Who's, All right. who's next? Let's, let's do this. All right. So on the line, we have Eric Stadnick from Doctor Who, The Writer's Room. Eric, could you please tell us your personal all-time favorite classic Doctor Who story of all time? <laughs> That's a lot of words. Uh, <laughs> so this was a very difficult task. Uh, but, mm. but Steve, you actually said something that really that really made me think differently about how I should answer you said something about something along the you know I I won't be swayed by sort of childhood preference and I'll sort of look at things very objectively. That's true, oh, yeah. And that's generally very true. That's how I approach these things. And so my answer for this question is often something like the War Games or Kinda, which Ooh. I which I feel very strongly about. That said, I kind of wanted to pick something that I loved maybe more than many other people did. Ooh, no, that's what we want. Yes, yes please. Guilty yes, pleasure. exactly. Exactly. So I wanted to go maybe slightly outside the box. And so Battlefield, the oh. Seven Doctor story written by Ben Aronovich from season 26, is my personal all-time favorite classic Doctor Who story. It is not without its problems. Oh, my Lord, it is not without its problems. Um, but what it does is something that Doctor Who... At its best, especially going forward, Battlefield is one of the stories that sort of introduces the new adventures approach to how you tell Ooh, a Doctor Who story, point. Yes. Um, which has sort of become come the main way, mm. is it, it takes this idea of the Doctor and the mythos we have about the Doctor and the TARDIS and the Companion and all that. And then says, well, what else is super duper British? King Arthur. Okay. <laughs> King Arthur is by no means a settled set of mythologies. It is mm. a jumbled and varied, weird, sure. twisting set of folk tales and legends. Mm. So why not insert the one into the other mm-hmm. and create essentially Doctor Who's own take on Arthurian legends? And sort of Arthurian legend take on Doctor Who, where the Doctor becomes Merlin, although he hasn't done that yet. It's still yeah. in the future. And you don't, and you, you never really find out. That's what I love about it. Well, you don't really ever really know if Arthur existed, but and you never really know if mm. um, if the Doctor was Merlin or, or what, what the deal is. They never really nail it down, which is so lovely. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's evidence to corroborate the fact that, that the Doctor is somehow involved in this in this storyline because you know he the note that's in arthur's tomb is in the doctor's handwriting <laughs> yeah uh, and, but the, the doctor doesn't he, i think someone i think ace says you know are you merlin and he's like i don't really he just doesn't really know and he's totally okay with that like he's like i'll find out yeah, it's like, it's yeah. maybe i will be and he's he's honestly not sure um but so aronovich finds within this sort of very deep well of sort of uh, archetypes and ideas that's embedded in Arthurian legend and just plays with it like nobody's business mm, from yeah. for Morgane coming as Jean Marsh as sort of the warrior queen sorceress princess <laughs> and making it and making the entire thing about a metaphor for nuclear war to yeah, Ace yeah. coming out of the lake with a sword in her hand. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> this is just, this is how you write Doctor Who on like a big epic scale is yeah. you think of these sort of familiar tropes that everyone understands, and then you subvert them and play with them and rethink them, um, right down to the identification of the brigadier as Arthur. 
which is what he clearly is in this story. He's, mm. you know, he's the old soldier who's reawakened for one final battle. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and yeah, I mean, God, yeah, it was written as three parts and expanded to four, and it didn't need it, and it was done clunkily, <laughs> and Aronovich acknowledges it, and Cartmel acknowledges it, and it's not. But but the stuff that's there, by and large, is so good and so inventive and so creative. Mm. Um, like I could just I could rhapsodize about Battlefield for days <laughs> about you know whether it's whether it's sort of moments like the sort of one everyone thinks about where the doctor's mm. holding the brigadier who he thinks is dead, yeah, and his he's mourning him and saying you were supposed to die in die bed. bed. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes. a great little bit. I always love that part. It's, it's just a little like, I, you know just a snippet. Yeah, just a snippet, but it shows it tells so, you so much, much about. Yes, about the doctor and this man, and then do- the brigadier wakes up. It's like, oh, blah, blah, blah. and of course, <laughs> later the brigadier, the brigadier does die in bed. We know from the Matt Smith the era, yeah, um, but, from, yeah, and but it, it, I, I don't know. It's, it's just full of these wonderful moments. Um, Morgane giving back the blind innkeeper her sight. Oh yeah, mm. oh yeah. Uh, because she's like, she can't pay money because they don't have Earth money, but she knows that she must pay. She's not evil. Mm. she's not evil in this sense and that's what makes it so such a great metaphor for just war generally it's not about good guys and bad guys it's not that simple and it's much more complicated and uh i think it's lovely yeah you're right it comes from such a rich like a, it's like a really rich vein of like a cultural history and like a, and it's aronovich like and he likes to take doctor who outside of its normal scope you know like it's small things that only happen in yeah. a few rooms you know he likes to bring it into a bigger bigger um which arena. we saw with remembrance of the daleks yeah. but he also does that in his new adventures in particular the also people mm. and there's something actually something you said um just before eric that really made me think you're right the way in which a battlefield works is that it brings together this disparate collection of stories or myths that have no true one linear uh, version or fashion. Mm. And that, that well, I'm talking about Doctor Who. <laughs> and it, and it brings, brings it in with the Merlin and Arthemis, which are exactly the same. And that sort of ambiguity, which means that they could very well be in the same universe or a parallel universe, mm. um, is, 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 yeah, definitely one of those things that really is a standout about Battlefield. And number one, it's wildly entertaining yeah. like it's just so fun to watch like yeah. it's great yeah that shouldn't be diminished like the, the casting is amazing and the oh. you know the night uniforms are a bit silly in some ways they're meant to be more space agey than they end up looking and stuff like that that people have I know <laughs> look back on it and sort of grimace but oh really it moves oh. at a great yeah yeah no Aronovich is, has, <laughs> is on record saying that he thinks the uniform the sort of <laughs> the way the knights are dressed is absolutely ridiculous and and it's one of, also one of those like you know the original title of the story was Nightfall with a K because you know mm. it's clever ah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then he over the course of production they decided that it's actually better to focus on it as a sort of war allegory generally yeah. um, and I think I think a lot of how you people feel about Battlefield hinges on the scene where the doctor comes in and he makes his grand speech about there be no battle here or here and whether yeah. or not you kind of believe McCoy in that moment I think is debatable for a lot of fans. And then Morgane comes and they have a brief scene. And then the Brigadier comes with a gun and holds it to Morgane's head. Or no, holds it to Ancelin's head. Or, 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 I forget who's... Or Mordred. Whatever. But he comes in. He joins this sort of moment. And Morgane is talking to Mordred and says, you know, don't fear the doctor, but fear this man. He is seeped in blood. <laughs> and it's just this wonderful reminder that the Brigadier kills people for a living. It is his job. And as cuddly and as nice as we want to make him and as many scenes as you want to have with him and Doris at the garden center or them, you know, <laughs> mowing the lawn at the end or whatever, like all those sort of warm, fuzzy scenes, the Brigadier is a soldier first and foremost. And uh, it, it, it won't let us forget that fact. And I love that about this story. Yeah. The mission's always more important than even his personal relationships. Yeah. Mm. yeah always. Mm. 
Yeah, so I I think it's I think it's a it's like it's a crackerjack story. It is not perfect. It is not without its flaws, but I think it is. If if when I think about like shows that make me episodes or stories that make me just love what Doctor Who can do intensely, Battlefield is always at the top of my list. So that's why I chose it. Oh, that one was great fun. So Eric came on for episode eleven in, uh, when we did Inferno way back in April, April. It was yeah, yeah, man, that was great. Uh, and I remember very clearly Bridget <laughs> hating that episode. That's one of my is that like her baseline now? Like what good Doctor <laughs> Who is and isn't for all future? What did Bridget thinks? So I think we're going to have uh, you know this, uh, like a sub segment, which is like, was it better than Inferno? <laughs> and the answer is usually yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. On to the next one. Dan, do you want to reach over there? Maybe actually uh, the one in the Christmas sock. Oh, excellent. Let's get this one out of the stocking. Okay. We've got Rob Irwin from the Doctor Who Show with us today. Thanks so much for joining us, Rob. Thank Thank you. Thank you. And we're going to ask you what we've been asking everyone else who has guested on our podcast. (laughs) Could you please tell us your personal all-time favorite classic Doctor Who story ever? I, I can, and in breaking news, it's not a Davo episode. <laughs> Shock. <laughs> there are probably two reasons why you would like a, a classic era story. Mm-hmm. One is that it's a good story, and it you know, and it tells you something uh, fun and meaningful, and 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 you go with it. The the second thing is though the circumstances in which you come to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And that can affect how you see a story too. So I'm going to pick a story that is a good story, and many people like, and that's fine. But it's the circumstances in which I first watched it that also make it special. The story mm. is The Demons. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, Pertwee, yeah. classic. Pertwee mm. Delgado. <laughs> even better. And for a long time, Pertwee wasn't even one of my particularly favourite doctors. Okay. He's, he's crept up a little in more recent times for me. But at this point in time, he wasn't one of my favourite doctors at all. So to be picking my favourite all-time story from a doctor I don't even particularly like yeah, historically, yeah. this is quite something. But the circumstances. The circumstances. Okay. <laughs> it was 1987. <laughs> I was in my local Doctor Who fan club and the club president had a lot of tapes and he was a bit cagey about copying them for people but once in a while he'd he'd do you a solid and he'd, you know make it seem like he was giving you the world and was, you know it's all, all a bit of a now that I look back at it but he would once in a while run you off a copy you know oh, I'll do it at night when mum and dad are in bed because he had to take the VCRs and hook them together and all that sort of stuff and he copied me The Demons as one of these stories. Now, yes. at the time, The Demons had been on Australian television as a black and white. Okay, yep. Because it, it only existed partly in colour and, and the rest in black and white, so they showed the whole thing in black and white. Oh. I had read the novelisation. Barry Letts. Barry Letts, oh, that's Barry right. And, and absolutely loved it. And I already was predisposed towards the story. Mm-hmm. Then I put on this, you know, second or third generation copy <laughs> that's black and white. They're at the Barrow in Devil's End. It's scary and spooky, but it's black and white. Yeah. And it had this feeling and it evoked this feeling that really enhanced the story for me. True. So although I quite liked the story and although I was just delighted to be seeing this this super rare, you know, third Doctor story <laughs> that I thought I would never, ever see because, yeah. you know, it wasn't on home video at the time or anything like that, <laughs> I was just blown away by it. And, and to this day, 
I still get that feeling when I watch it. Even when I watch it in colour now. Wow. It, it, it is just that comfy pair of slippers story. Sure. It's peak unit family. It's, yeah. You know, the Doctor and the Master going at it. They're in a little English village. I mean, how much more Doctor Who can this get? <laughs> you know, apart from being in space, perhaps. You know, that's the only missing element. No, that, the English village, I think, is even more Doctor Who. It's yeah. great. When you put Delgado and Pertwee together, it's always magic. Like. Yeah. And so, for that reason, when you look back at Doctor Who, there are so many great stories. There are so many stories I love. Mm. It's shocking that I've not picked a Davo story it's shocking i didn't pick kinder or something like that but no I, i'm going to pick the demons because of the way in which i saw it and experienced it the first time visually i mean i've read, read the novel of course but visually oh that black and white i think i should go and watch it on the dvd yeah. with the color turned off my tv actually well that's so those stories are so important i mean we all come to doctor who in different ways and we've all got those memories and that's part of the reason why the show resonates so strongly for us it's been like that's mm. more that's you know that tears to uh, different stories in different ways for each of us you know you, everyone's got their favorite but everyone's got ones that they remember because of where they were or they were, you know what their life was like at the time so yeah. it's the great mm-hmm. way we get a story out of there exactly right five doctors is another story like that that's an old comfy pair of uh, stories yeah. Story yeah. For people. Yeah. that's you definitely know, the content and the way in which they saw it uh, often that's definitely like a day off sick from school <laughs> yes. put on five doctors type of feel yeah. yes it's interesting what you say about the black and white, particularly for the Pertwee stories. I think it's so true. So I watch Ambassadors of Death and mm. The Mind of Evil. I purposely choose to watch it in black and white because I think it just works so much better and it's more atmospheric as a result. We did watch Mind of Evil in black and white. Yeah. I didn't even know. Oh, God, because it's in colour. Why did we do that? Just because, yeah. That's Maybe great. that was just the version we had. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll vote for Ambassadors in black and white as well. Yeah. That's mm. really scary. Very creepy. All right. Well, thank you very much, Rob. That's a great share and uh, a great story. Thanks thank, again. Thank Thanks you. So much. Right. So that was uh, Robert Irwin from the the wonderful Doctor Who show podcast. Yeah. Uh, we did Enlightenment with him back in May. Yeah, that one of my great. absolute favourites. Enlightenment. I'm so glad I got to do it with uh, with Rob as a fellow Davo fan. Great fun. Rob's probably on Bondi Beach celebrating Christmas this year. Have a good one, Rob, and uh, Merry Christmas. See you in the new year. Thanks, Rob. All right, should we open another one? Yeah, let's do it. Another chestnut, Steve? Oh, no, I couldn't possibly. Here we are with uh, J.R. Southall from the Blue Box podcast, who is about to tell us his personal all-time favourite classic Doctor Who story ever. J.R., what is it? It's the time monster. And the reason <laughs> why the time... <laughs> <laughs> you tricked us. It's... The Talons of Wang Chiang. Ah. The Talons of Wang Chiang. Everybody. Well, not everybody's absolute favourite, but... You know what? Um, before I go into talking about why I do like it, the, when you ask people their favourites, and especially if it's a list of favourites, they'll quite un, quite often throw in a slightly quirky choice mm-hmm. to kind of show that they're a slightly quirky person <laughs> who's slightly left field of, you know mainstream opinion everybody loves talons of wang chang and so do i and there's a very good reason for that it falls right at the end becoming the absolute apex of the greatest period Mm. of production Mm. in the series history where absolutely every aspect from the dialogue in the scripts to the direction to the production design to the actors they were casting absolutely everything about the program was singing absolutely from the top of its lungs at this point this is the last story where they pulled out all the stops to do all of those things as well as they possibly could and they did quite frankly 
Of course this is the best Doctor Who story because this is the one where everybody who was working on it did their absolute best job at the absolute height of the powers of their capabilities. And beyond that, there is also something else about this story, apart from the fact that the dialogue absolutely sings, that the characterization is absolutely spot on, that the production design is absolutely gorgeous. But Doctor Who, it kind of has this thing where we kind of associate the Doctor with the Victorian era. That's despite true. the fact sure. that when he comes in, he's wearing Edwardian clothes. And despite <laughs> the fact that in the entire classic series, he ends up in the Victorian era a grand total of about four times. I think, actually, <laughs> we're making a slight mistake there. We don't associate the Doctor with the Edwardian Edwardian period. We associate him with things like H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. And Sherlock Holmes. Indeed, Sherlock Holmes as well. We associate him with a type of fiction that was around in the early 20th century, mm -hmm. late 19th and early 20th, which doesn't necessarily equate to Victorian, also includes Edwardian, sure. mm -hmm. but it equates to a certain style of fiction that the Doctor seems to embody. And not only is this story a story that actually addresses that fiction, but it actually turns the Doctor into one of the characters from those stories mm. that Doctor Who has always aped the, the tenor and the tone of. So this is the absolute um, sort of best example of Doctor Who being Doctor Who. The best made and the one that's most true to what it's trying to do. And it includes a little bit of racism, so there's always a bit where yes. well, there's no classic Doctor Who story. Yeah, there's no classic Doctor Who story where there isn't a bit where you say, oh, they could have done that differently. True. So even the best story has to have something in it. Something horrible. <laughs> it's Bob Holmes, yeah. isn't it? Like, it's one of his, like, great uh, masterpieces. You know, considering also that he wrote this in a hurry too, which is impossible oh, yeah. to, to sort of think how he, how he could have done that. Um, yeah, I think I think. But then you, you look at right. City of Death, the, the other great story from the nineteen seventies. Uh, yeah. Again, written in a hurry, it seems to be writing in a hurry works for Doctor <laughs> Who. <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who is that up there, Dan? I, I don't know where you're pointing. What, what, what is that? On the, up on the bridge in white. Bridge. Up there on the bridge, Steve. The guy, the weird bloke in white, standing perfectly oh still. My God, what? Who's that? Who is this weirdo? I don't know. He's been following us. It's making me very uneasy. He's gone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure he won't become relevant later. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, that was Robots of Death. We actually did with J.R. Southall way back in July, JR. episode 13. It was. That was a real classic, wasn't it? Hinchcliffe and Holmes. So good. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Merry Christmas to you, J.R. And uh, all the best for 2019. Let's have a look at that present over there. Yeah, Dan. grab the weird-looking one. Ooh, okay, let's have a look. Yeah. So we have Todd with us here from Flight Through Entirety, and we're going to ask Todd for his personal all-time favourite classic Doctor Who story ever. Todd, what is it? Well, before I answer that question, I think it's a, I, I find it a really hard thing. I find it hard to answer it. Sure, sure. And I think you can sit down and you can start going through each of the Doctor's eras, and then you'll come up with different stories that you'd consider in your top ten and everything like that. But I think when anybody gets... Ask this question. It should 
literally be you don't think about it whatever pops into your head mm. must be somewhere in the back of your brain as, as something that you really enjoy and so when I was asked this question um, there were three stories that sort of popped into my head mm-hmm. the first one was Attack of the Cybermen <laughs> and then it was the Stones of Blood oh. and the Keeper of Traken ah. and you know that's not to deride any other Tom Baker like like Ark in Space or Seeds of Doom or Pyramids of Mars or sure. or John Pertwee Death to the Daleks. It doesn't. Yeah, we're not looking for the for necessarily the best. It's just what yeah, or, your favorite. Or even like Remembrance of the Daleks or Happiness Patrol or Ghost Side or Curse of oh, Fenric. Yeah. Now I mention all of those because all of those stories. When I thought about this, all of those stories were the ones that sort of popped into my head. Funnily enough, there's a few doctors there that nothing automatically came into in, into my head at all, which I found quite sort of uh, interesting. But I'm going to go with Attack of the Cybermen. <laughs> because so many people do not like this story. And Dwim gave it 3 out of 10 in their review. Um, and it's just... People just bitch about it. And I just sit there and as a kid, I just adored it. I think episode one... As a, as a runaround is one of the best episodes of Doctor Who of all time. <laughs> it is so funny. Like, all the stuff with the TARDIS changing and Perry's, you know, having a, having a go at the Doctor. Doctor's getting more frustrated and then he's trying to find this alien, you know, just going to sit there. It's all worried and everything like this. And oh, the, moment he, the moment she says that, that he called her the terrible Zode and I just burst out laughing <laughs> every single time I just love that in joke from the five doctors <laughs> and, I, and I just love all their banter through, throughout the entire first episode like I just really it's really lovely. adore it mm. and then you've got Lytton and his little crew and 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 you know the Cybermen are there and I think the fat controller as I call the, 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 the cyber <laughs> controller and, and the, the guys on, on Telos um, Bates and Lytton and they're ridiculous plan to get a cyber head which I just always just find so amusing it's really going to work guys <laughs> so I just absolutely adore episode one of Attack of the Cybermen yeah. it's one of my all time favourite episodes of Doctor Who um, obviously we, we saw it here in Australia as 225 minute episodes and it's got an artificial cliffhanger mm. in, in the middle where the Doctor and Perry are in some tunnels and there's a bit of a shadow and that was the, the cliffhanger and I thought <laughs> what a crap cliffhanger but I just love that and, and I even like the, the actual cliffhanger where Terry Malloy gets bashed um, by one of the Cybermen and has to stagger and collapse over cables in the TARDIS, right? Which you don't see. Like his, that, that does, I just crack up on that whole thing. And then, of course, they threaten Perry. So I think episode one is just one of the best episodes of Doctor Who of all time. And I think Colin is just killing it in the role <laughs> completely. After, what, you know, Twin Dilemma and what people think of that, I just think he's absolutely brilliant. Episode two, I think is... The, it, it changes and, it, and it's sort of like a 90 degree turn mm. where there's lots of people in, in different rooms and, and a lot of um, uh, duos together mm-hmm. and I love the Doctor and Flast and, and I think one of the best scenes in the history of Doctor Who is is, is the Doctor and Colin when he realises the Time Lords have probably manipulated him into this position and he's talking to the air and he's getting angry and angry. Mm-hmm. I just I just think it's fantastic. Um, and then, of course, Perry has to deal with the cryons, who I actually really love the cryons, the fact that that um, there's this alien race that have created the refrigeration on, on Telos. Um, and they're not, you know, they're going to kill her, right? They're, they're debating whether or not to kill her and all that sort of thing. And I, I just I just really like the fact that they're so sort of... All their hands and the way they work and all that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and, the, you know, Stratton and Bates just keep me entertained, even if, you know, 
they end up unfortunately dying. And I love the other guy that says, getting a bit rough, is it? Um, with the Cyberman, um, um, uh, Lytton's henchman. Oh, um, gosh. Oh, I've forgotten his name at the moment. Um, but uh, he's great as well. Um, you know, people do sometimes criticise, you, you know, the tombs and that sort of thing. But mm. I'm, I'm fine with, you know, it's just a different part of the tombs. The tombs are sure. huge and they've yeah. been built over many, many years. Yeah. And, you know, it's the 80s. We want to do it. We want to make it better and do it again because we think we can do that sort of thing. Um, and then at the end, you know, the doctor's forced into this horrible position and has to, you know, take up arms and, you know, shoot all the Cybermen dead. And I'm perfectly fine with that. I've been, you know, a bit of violence there at the end. But it does, you know, and there's then a very interesting ending to the, that episode where he goes, it doesn't, didn't go very well, did it? It's really downbeat. And, and I just, look, I adore episode one. There's so much to enjoy in episode two. You know, it's it's one of my go-to stories. Mm. I just really love it. Love and that. and I don't care that people think that it's three out of ten and it's got all this history. I love all the <laughs> fact that it links back to the 10th planet and Tomb of the Cybermen. Yeah, you're a fanboy. Enjoy it. Embrace it. I love it. <laughs> Lovely. An impassioned plea for Attack mm. of the Cybermen. Wonderful. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Okay, so we have Richard with us here from Flight Through Entirety. Richard, could you please tell us your personal all-time favourite classic Doctor Who story ever? If the dear listener could see the intent grins, it's almost cruel. As everyone looks at us and says, well, go on, you have to say it now. It's really hard, isn't it? I'd challenge anyone listening to this to, what is your favourite? <laughs> you can say, what's the best quality or what really moved me or what... You know, what was my biggest buzz when I was 12 years of age or whatever age it is mm. that the hormones hit that bit of the frog brain, as Stephen Jay Gould used to call it, and that's where fandom starts, that <laughs> vestigial bit that's always been there. And you go, oh, my God, Tom Baker's gurning at me or Christopher Eccleston was whoever it was. I have to say, though, and I didn't grow up with this stuff, so I started Doctor Who with Pertwee. And when it was free to air and back in the 70s when you really had to hang on to every moment of this and really watch it and watch it carefully. So there are lots of beautiful moments in Planet of the Spiders that I really love because mm. it still feels cold when you watch it. You get a real sense of the alienation and the, and the sadness and the, the end stories are always really beautiful. Yeah. Everyone's end yeah. stories are really beautiful. But I've got to say anything with Jackie Hill is always going to be an absolute genius piece of work but even then none of them are as good as the myth makers the myth makers is so good because it's the closest doctor who ever gets to doing carry on (laughs) and then and it really is with people like um um prime is max adrian isn't he so you know he i think he was actually in a carry on but he certainly worked with all of those guys before really seriously fine performers doing really clever donald cotton's one of the best in the game <laughs> i'd urge any of you if, if you've not and that's the other thing i really like about it it takes us back to mine and todd's childhood um off the fte podcast we've both talked about these before is that you had to know these things through books we didn't even have audios. So books were the first... And it was one of the later ones to come out, one of the later targets. Um, Colin had already been the Doctor. Um, I think he still was, wasn't he, when, when Mythmakers came out, so mid-'80s. But there's a real sense of the past and the present and the continuity of Doctor Who and what makes it just so damn good. And then there's that lovely stuff we've just recorded um, our podcast of Vengeance on Varos and we talk about the denouement, the end of the piece of being 
the helium's left out of the balloon. And in fact, it's not a Hindenburg disaster, but no one's really getting out of this with any great alacrity, without any, with, you know, with any great vim. It's so effing sad because it's truth. And it's about, it ends up being a pain against war and against conflict and just against bureaucracy and against the pettiness of long-standing um, alienation and long-standing hatred. And it's, it's so clever. It's a human drama. But the first three, you really just are waiting for Sid James and Kenneth Williams to start burning <laughs> at you. I think it's a beautiful piece of TV drama. It, it also happens to be Doctor Who. And you have to listen to it because please don't watch Reconstructions. Uh, they, they, they kill the show they abs- and don't bloody watch those animations because they kill them even more <laughs> except for the invasion which actually feels really nice but just go and listen to it and then read the book and i think you'll see what i mean doctor who's really good for so many different reasons because it does pretty much everything it tries to do at some point in its history it's done really well and i really love this one as an introduction to doctor who actually Start with this, because you've got to have to think. You, it's radio. You've got to use your imagination. You'll picture everything. Mm. That's where the richness of Doctor Who was for our generation. You had mm. to read it and imagine what these people were like. <laughs> Lovely. Thank, Thank you, you, Richard. That is an actually really good pick. I remember reading the Donald Cotton novelization. You've read it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm it's so, so glad. funny. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. Yes, yes. And, the, really? and, and there's an audio book as well. I think it's by Stephen Thorne. I might be wrong there, but uh, that that's that's a great. I've great never listened book. to any, any any of the audios. It's I've worth only, a only go. read. I've only you, read. Yeah. I know Nathan listens to all of them, but I the, he seems the, to yeah the audible the ones. Episodes, but I, the, as in the the read novels. No, I like the. I like the narrated BBC one. Is it written in the first person? Yes, it is. It's uh, it's done as Homer exactly. Yeah. Yeah. God, that's such a great idea. Oh, go and read the Robert Fales translations. Fagels? Fagels translations. Yeah, absolutely. So much fun. Yeah. Just skip the introduction because it's like half the book, but yeah, (laughs) really good. You just go, oh, yes, rompy, rompy, rompy. The Iliad is brilliant, definitely. I I love that as well. I particularly love how, I guess we have, you know, I love myth and literature Mm. and when it meets Doctor Who, it's particularly beautiful. But what's wonderful about the myth makers is that it undercuts the myth. We see the characters not for their mythic qualities, but for their very fallible human qualities. And that's what's so glorious about this Donald Cotton script. Amazing. Mm. I'm so happy that someone's finally. We talk about novelizations every, every we time, do. but no one's yeah. ever, no one's put that into their favorite thing yet. Oh, okay. So I'm quite happy with okay. that. Yeah. We grew up because well, we. Well, we use the cover art every every month. Don't I didn't we? have yeah. I didn't have money to buy VHSs when I was a kid. So it was they were expensive. My, my mom took yeah. me, and this is in the early nineties. My mom would take me to the library every week, and I would get a, a, yeah. a trove of them. Yeah. they were all the big, the, the big hardcover hard ones. Yeah, yeah. so I would read yeah, those every week. Yeah, uh, so, because we couldn't. Like I still, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't seen so many. I missed out, so I read so many. You couldn't get Hartnell's uh, or or, or Troutons. Exactly. Nice. So we read them all. And and you know what? I actually went back when I was like twelve or thirteen, and with my pocket money yeah. saved to buy from the beginning. So it took me years, and I kind of was still through Hartnell by the time I basically, you know, gave up on them. And I've since got all of them that I've read in the meantime. Yeah, yeah. But I went back, and Hartnell was my doctor for a long time reading through the type yeah. novelization I fell in love with They're that really character good. with that era Bill Strutton yeah. David Whittaker oh, Zabi yeah. Dan how fun was that <laughs> Vengeance on Varos Richard and Todd what amazing a, what a duo I love these two together they're so funny <laughs> such a good episode thanks very much guys and a Merry Christmas to you both thank as well thank you thanks so much yeah uh, Dan, do you want some eggnog? Oh, God, Steve. No, it's a 40-degree West Australian Christmas. No, I do not want some disgusting eggnog. Thank you. Let's just open another present. All right, okay. Fair enough, too. <laughs>
Okay, so we have James Selwood here <laughs> in the studio. Uh, James is going to ask you for your personal all-time favourite classic Doctor Who story ever. What is it? Um, I mean, this, obviously this sort of thing changes over the years, mm. but um, I kind of really latched onto the Happiness Patrol mm. um, as a child, and I ca- found myself coming back to it constantly. Mm. Um, and obviously, you know, how old was I? I don't know, eight or nine. Mm-hmm. Um, and didn't realise the depth of it back yeah. then. But um, many years later, about, yeah, about 10, ten years later, um, I was um, getting into fandom. Actually, fandom was earlier. When was that? Early 90s. Um, but uh, I and some friends actually started a, a gay and lesbian um, Doctor Who fanzine called The Happiness Patrol because oh, yeah. <laughs> of how much that had sort of impacted on on me, I realised. Like, um, and so, so that, because of, you know, the, the allegory, mm. well-hidden allegory, I guess, um, mm-hmm. behind that story, that, that really... You know, it spoke to me, and that was the first big sort of fandom thing that I did. I guess was was create this fan fanzine with a friend Sarah Sarah Grunewagen, um and her then girlfriend um, Melanie Fitzson. So um, it, that I think probably just kind of added to that, and then having sort of revisited it a dozen or more times over the years, I've just. It, it's just so it's so beautiful and poetic and mm. and the lack of reality in the sets yes and the the heightened nature of the um, of the costumes all I actually think makes it so much more than what it could have been if it had been directed in a realistic yeah, way and I played yeah. played straight down the line mm. the the creative choices that were made were not that puzzling <laughs> <laughs> um but but i i i think that i would have to say that you know obviously for you know having dug into it and the i just i just really love that story um those layers and that sort of extra meaning and allegories what does it for you yeah i mean so it took a while so it took a while for it to become to, to, to realize that because you know you know, you're not really sort of functioning on a political level at the age of eight or nine. <laughs> Some of us are, I guess. But, um, but, but you know, like, I mean, realising that I was gay a few years later mm. and um, and also having studied history for most of my, well, all throughout high school, all throughout my undergraduate degree, I, I majored in modern history. Yeah. Um, and being... Like like going back and researching the history, not just of the story, but of the UK at that time, and and um, you, you know the 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 layering of the you know, the the criti- critique of Thatcherism and right. um, and clause twenty eight. Yes, section twenty eight. Um, that's right. Yes, uh, so that you know that just makes it so much more than what people realize what yeah. it is on top or on the surface yeah and I, I, I actually I schooled someone on Twitter the other day who was <laughs> <laughs> not in a nasty way they were like oh I um, because Big Finish have just announced that they're doing a, a new Paul McGann story right. um, and they're bringing back the Candyman oh wow um, but as the character was originally intended like he's this mad scientist yeah. he's a human like so yeah. I'm guessing it's set 
before or who knows um mm-hmm. but actually it could be interesting this person was like going, oh i you know i i was interested about this this character and so mm. i went back and watched the happiness of troll it's a bit camp and um but but uh, tremendous fun and i was like well actually it's meant then, to be camp <laughs> well you know it's 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 meant to be camp because it's it's telling quite a serious yeah story about oppression mm-hmm. and discrimination and 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 that that so I, I, I sent him an article from The Guardian and also mm. a link to a um, flight through entirety. Nice, <laughs> yes. Um, and he was like, ooh, thanks. But, um, it, like, I just... But it's nice. just... The Candyman, that voice, uh, the way they chose to play, that, that hiss of, like, barely contained rage. Oh, yeah, look, it's... It's, so, it's, it's terrifying uh, me. Um, I, I think it is Doctor Who at its most allegorical, yeah. really. Um, or... Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I think when it has done unreality before, it's not got that much of a point to it, the mind robber. Um, <laughs> but the, I, I think the Happiness Patrol actually just has this great balance of what Doctor Who's great at, which is taking real world mm. situations exactly. and, and, and making a political point without beating you over the head with it. Yeah. And which is strange no. to think, given how... It's kind of a kid show, but they're not—they're yeah. not uh, treating you like a like an idiot. Mm. But you know, when they have done that sort of thing before, mm. it doesn't always work. Yeah. That's true. Yep. Monster of Peladon. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just—it really—it really sort of ticked my box, I think. Um, and I don't mean that in a sexual way. <laughs> um, so I mean, you've given us like an incredibly rich personal context to it, and also the historical context of you know Section Twenty Eight under Thatcher, but also you know the way in which. Um, it's sort of allegorical for us, I guess, the, the persecution of homosexuals throughout history. But particularly, I think there's the real sort of Nazi aspect to it through the use of the pink triangle um, insignia as well throughout the, the story. Mm. So this, is, this isn't a light story. Uh, well, it is on the superficially well, so. On the surface, yeah. yeah. Especially when you watch it as a kid. I don't even think that it, as a kid you knew it was dark. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think... Um, Those noir aspects that yeah, come Yeah, the, the fact That's that they, the it's basically a black and white story. Yeah, yeah. Except... You know, the grey is pink. The empty street. The grey is pink. Yeah, the empty Um, street with the street light and the bench. Like that's yeah, it's straight out of the thirties cinema. Oh, and you know, like I mean, I would kick myself if I didn't go on about the soundtrack as well. (laughs) Yeah, that music and I've been flirting outrageously with um, Dominic Glynn on Twitter over this because (laughs) I just love that soundtrack. It's just so like sorrowful. Yes, and like the harmonica refrain throughout it. It just yeah, it just hits me mm. like whenever I watch that story, and I can rewatch that story over and over again. That is yeah, that's an amazing wrap up there of of a story that I suppose in season twenty five maybe is overshadowed a lot by Remembrance, which is the season sure. opener, one that we've done in the past, but has a real beautiful um, and sorrowful, as you say, aspect to it. It operates on t- those two levels, like yeah. you say, Dan. There's always something there for the kids, but there's something a lot deeper there. And I think you're right, James. It it it's not often that Doctor Who does that and, and pulls it off entirely enough, but I think it does in the Happiness Patrol. All right. Oh, wow. Thanks so much. Thank you Thank for you. sharing your story and for sharing your personal favourite all-time classic Doctor Who story. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, that was uh, Nathan and James from Flight Through Entirety again. Uh, doing They did Ghostlight with us yeah. back in uh, August. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed fun. that one, definitely. Uh, having those guys on our podcast is always, always great. Uh, yeah. Merry Christmas to you guys, and thanks so much. Yeah, definitely. Okay, shall we go on to the next one? Yeah, there's, a few, there's not many left. No, not really. Not but uh, Christmas is nearly over. We've had some over. great ones so far. I'm sure it'll continue. 
All right, great. So we've got Dave here from the Doctor Who show. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Uh, and you're here to tell us about your all-time most favorite Doctor Who story ever. And please tell us what it is. There are a couple of honorable mentions I've got to get in. The Seeds of Doom, Ooh, yeah. Human Nature, Ooh. Dark Invasion of Earth. Ooh. But the one that is undisputably my favourite is Doctor Who and the Silurians. Ah, oh, oh. season seven. Season seven. I love season seven. Uh, I love John Pertwee. He's, you know, my, my number two Doctor, and he was my childhood favourite. Sure. The Silurians is a story that I think is Doctor Who at its absolute best. Hmm. It is scary. It is intelligent. Hmm. It has great actors. It has great characters. It has a genuine moral dilemma. Yeah. And it has cool monsters. <laughs> yeah. It's, and, and it's got some cracking cliffhangers. Like, what more do you want in a Doctor <laughs> Who story? And it just starts off with, like, one of the best ideas of Doctor Who, in my opinion, which is the concept, brilliant concept, of a race of people who live on the Earth before humanity. Yeah. Um, who go into hibernation. I just love that idea. And you can't, you can't start with that and go wrong. <laughs> yeah. And they wake up and discover the Earth has been taken over by what they consider to be primitive you know descendants of apes yeah. Yeah. and they're like well this is our planet we, we just want it back mm. and even within there there's the drama of the one silurian who says look okay maybe we can cohabitate with mm. man there's the other who says no we've got to take our planet back mm. and all the drama that comes from that then you chuck in the virus those scenes at our, oh, yeah. our waterloo station yeah. where you actually see the impact of a story on the general population mm-hmm. of Doctor Who. Like, this is so far from word peril. Yeah. This, this is this is actually showing this disease wiping out parts of London. Yeah. And at the same time, Pertwee's great. You've got Liz Shaw, yeah. one of my favourite companions. This is wonderful. The Brigadier at his best. Yeah. Uh, but you've got people like uh, Fulton Mackay, Peter Miles, mm. like great guest cast. Mm. And he it, it, it terrified me as a kid. Mm. The mm. Silurians terrified me as a kid. The virus terrified me. But even now, it's still, you know, it's an impactful story. And it's but hard, it's so intelligent. It's so clever. It's hard to argue with, with, their, with their logic, really. I mean, uh, they're, one of the, they're an example of one of those Doctor Who monsters that's not necessarily inherently evil. That's exactly it. They're trying to survive. And yeah. can you blame them? Uh, you and know? they have every right to the Earth as much as we do sure. as, as, as a race as well. And it's Malcolm Hulk, who is just one of the yeah. great writers of, 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 of Doctor Who in that period. Um, so, who was, uh, I guess, a noted communist, but also someone who uh, had an in- incredibly strong moral core. Mm. And these questions of ethics and how we live and what is right and wrong it, it, to be explored in Tea Time Saturday Doctor yeah. Who, just incredible. A heavy moral quandary to, mm-hmm. be, to be contemplating at that time of the day. But it's just a great, great premise to start from. And I, I love it. And I'm glad you mentioned that because whilst many people remember Malcolm Holt from his early days as a communist, mm. in his work in Doctor Who, there is this wonderful liberalism that goes through it, whether <laughs> it's the Silurians, colony in space, the invasion of the dinosaurs, which is another favourite of mine. Me too. There, there is this wonderful human liberalism that goes through it that informs my values to this day. Mm. Yeah, I, I, and I think the way that it finishes as well, which is uh, there isn't a nice, tidy BBC crap joke at no, the end of it. No. It's... The Brigadier blows up Wenley Moore. He's killed those Silurians down there. And the Doctor's absolutely disgusted. And I don't know how actually they sort of maintain a relationship after that yeah. because it basically is the the clashing of two ideologies. You know, the Doctor's peaceful sort of um, mm. approach and the, and the Brigadier's sort of, you know, bomb them until they're, well, they're no longer a threat. The, the, mission, the mission, you know, protect, uh, protect the Earth comes yeah. before everything else. Yeah, and we've seen that many times yeah. with the Brigadier, definitely. Yeah, it, it is a wonderful point and ending. And, yeah, I think it's Pertwee and Nicholas Courtney and um, 
the rest of the cast at their best. I, I can I can watch the Silurians from start to finish, all seven episodes, mm. and go back and watch it from episode one again without missing <laughs> a Very, very happily. I, re- I remember reading the novelization oh, so over, good. over and over for years before. I've only seen it a few years ago for the first time and, and just just like always remember those those questions. Yeah. yeah. Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, it's called, and it is just beautiful. There's mm. a chapter where uh, Malcolm Hulk uh, describes the point of view of um, one of the Silurians mm. as, it's, as it's escaped. Yeah. Oh, that's that's wonderful. It is. So uh, there we have it. I think a real stone cold classic that Dave's given us as his favourite ever Doctor Who story yeah. of all time. Great one. Thanks, Dave. Beautiful pick. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Cheers. So, Dave, uh, I'm sensing that you may have something else to tell us. So, have you got a guilty pleasure? Well, you asked me to think about that way, way back when we planned this. <laughs> For a long time, I was going to go with the Horns of Nymon, <laughs> which is a terrible story in many ways, but he's so fun to watch. Yeah. <laughs> But I'm actually going to pick The Keys of Marinus. Oh, oh, Hartnell again. It's a Hartnell story, and it is a quest story. Yeah. And it is it is kind of the Hartnell era at its best in that, okay, some of it's very cheap, some of it's very dodgy, <laughs> sure. some of it doesn't hold up, but this idea of exploring an entire planet yeah. and going to the snow-capped peaks, then going to a jungle, then yeah. going to a city, and, and, and you know the city of Morphoton as well. Mm-hmm. All these different things in every episode. Mm. Great concepts, great sci-fi ideas. Yeah, There's some really fun stuff in there. And look, it does drag in a couple of points. <laughs> this, this is why it's a guilty pleasure. Not yeah. a it does drag in a couple of points. It does look cheap, even for 60s Doctor Who at a couple of points. But where it fires the imagination, it's really, really good. And... I, I think that it, yeah, it's a it's a flawed but very fun. It's story. an adventure, like it's a fun it, adventure. It is an adventure. Yeah. It, it keeps is going because every episode is different, and it never. It's strange to think that Doctor Who never did that again, where they had a story where every week there would be something entirely new, but it was sort of be bound about up. The chase. Well, okay, maybe I'll give you that, but it's not quite the same. Or <laughs> no, maybe even the key not. to time. But the keys of Marinus just feels like, I guess, that classic quest narrative brought to Doctor Who, and it does it in a really beautiful way. And it's all set on the one planet, which is really interesting too. The fact that there's you know such a multiplicity of yeah. you know settings and cultures and, and cities yeah. on one planet. Because in a lot of sci-fi and in Doctor Who, you often get like a the planet's mm. just got one homogenous yeah, culture yeah, yeah. with one single leader, which is crazy. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you you go to a planet and you meet twelve people, and that's the planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, the implication is that they're all like these people and everyone's the same. Mm. Yeah. Great. Well, Dave, that's a, a, it's lovely to get a guilty pleasure from you. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Lovely. All right. So that was episode 17 back in October, the 10th planet. And Dave Kitchen came on the show from the Doctor Who show. It's great to have Dave. Oh, man. Silurians. Good pick. Yeah. Very good pick. But it was also <laughs> great to have him on because obviously he's just such a mass- massive Hartnell fan. So Yeah. It was I- good to lock in our Hartnell yeah, sector. I think it was important to do that again, yeah. particularly after An Unearthly Child way back in episode zero. So, so sure. Dave, thanks very much. Merry Christmas to you. Fantastic. Over there in Melbourne, it's probably raining on Christmas Day. Oh, probably <laughs> miserable Melbourne Christmas. Sorry. Sorry, Dave. But enjoy the day all the same. All right. Well, let's open another one. Uh, let's pick this. There's an extra special one over here under oh, the tree. Yeah. I think we should open this one. Let's have a look at this one. Oh, it's exciting. With me now, I have friend of the podcast, in fact, sister of mine, Lisa B, aka at Fox in Space on Twitter, uh, one of our favorite contributors and artists, and one of my best friends. Uh, we're going to ask Lisa what your personal favorite classic Doctor Who story of all time is, please. Hello. Well, when this question was poised to me, I had to think long and hard, and uh, out of 
the classic Who's, I have to say my favourite is State of Decay, mainly because it's just such a great episode that showcases the wonderful dynamic between the fourth Doctor and Romana too, Layla Ward. Mm. Uh, she was such a fantastic companion and uh, equal in her intellect to the Doctors mm. that it was just really fantastic seeing a, a time lady, a, a woman that I could relate to um, and, you know, imagine and fantasize about being. And she was so yeah. she was so witty and she was quite sharp and, and could be quite prickly. But, uh, you know, she, she had every right to be because she was so much more clever. <laughs> um, so the reason why I love it so much is because it's a vampire story. Mm. I love vampire stories. And I think... Um, that fascination with the Doctor and the vampires has followed through, especially in the missing adventures like Goth Opera and then the new yeah. adventures with um, Blood Harvest. Yes, yeah. that's right, with Benny. Um, uh, the thing that fascinated me most about State of Decay was the concept of, this, of a society going backwards, uh, as a regressing in technology, which is re a really fascinating idea um, when you think about a lot of the sci-fi shows that we watched when we were kids mm. it was always futuristic you know you know out in space or, or you know incredible technology you know laser beams all that kind of stuff whereas uh the doctor lands in the future but he's landed in the past it's it's a very bizarre concept which is re really really cool because you see little uh hints of the technology that used to be a part of their a part of their world and and the way that the trio, the, the three baddies, have manipulated the township. The banning of technology, it's a very kind of autocratic kind of ruling, very feudal, you know, by taking away all education and takes away any kind of agency from from any of the people to, to kind of rise up. So it has that kind of medieval feel to it, uh, which, which is a fascinating part of human history that I've always been interested in, especially. I really love Adric in this because he's the, he's the awkward kid and when you're an awkward kid, it's really <laughs> nice to see an awkward kid hanging out with the doctor. <laughs> uh, personally, it made such a big impact because it's one of my earliest memories of watching the show when we were kids. Mm. Um, I think you, when you're such a little kid, you, you when you see the doctor fighting the bad guys, you have so much trust in him and so much hope that he's going to save the day. And I think in State of Decay, I legitimately thought that he might lose <laughs> because of uh, the, the three who rule are so menacing and the monster is so gigantic. Mm. You really wonder how is uh, the Doctor, who's you know just a, a man, uh, going to deal with a, a monster that's the size of a planet. <laughs> <laughs> and also the fact that the, the ruling three had the power of mind control and could also put Romana under hypnosis. Mm kind of showed that even the power of their knowledge and intellect wasn't enough or could not possibly be enough to, to, to fight them. Yeah. Which is something that you learn to cherish with the Doctor, that you don't have to be physically strong to fight the baddies, that you can use your, your brains mm. and, and your wits and your humour. <laughs> <laughs> and I really love the set design, all the rich reds and the, and the costumes and the, the makeup especially uh, was, was really cool. Mm. It's something that the BBC do really well, isn't it? Like the, that very period costumes and set design. Yeah, I mean, people always make fun of Doctor Who having ridiculous props and, and monsters, but I think the way 
that they presented State of Decay. It's very Shakespearean. It's got yeah. that really cool um, historical value to it that makes it even more real. And I think that's why it made such an impact as a kid because mm. it looked like history. Yeah. <laughs> and another point about it being feeling really realistic is the fact that I used to think that Orkhon was a very Rasputin kind of character, mm. you know, being the religious leader of the of the three and the one who is connected to to the original great vampire. You know, the fact that he's psychically linked to to the great vampire, it, it had a lot of echoes to the way Rasputin was with the, with the with the Tsars. It was really fascinating as a kid uh, seeing the the continental shift uh, scene where you're trying to see the evolution of words. And when you come from a bilingual family, it's really fun to see how different languages uh, work stem from one another like when you're learning English and you see French and and the similarity between the words or with German um, I quite liked that scene and then it's really funny on the commentary Terence Dix hated that scene and he (laughs) wanted to shorten it it's so cute the way he complains about it but um, that one that is a memory that has stuck with me for a really long time because of my personal uh, interest in in languages and, and the way they different languages come from the same family tree Mm. Mm. and I suppose State of Decay has always been a favorite because it is the fourth doctor and he is my strongest memory Um, I don't feel like he is my doctor I've always felt like he was our doctor watching it especially um, when he regenerated into the fifth doctor Mm. lots of memories of Logopolis but he's so familiar and when you you know, you see him in pop culture. You talk about Doctor Who, people automatically think about Tom Baker. So it does feel like when you when you're watching his episodes that it is it is the Doctor. Mm. You know, and he's with that famous maroon scarf of mm. his. Uh, even fans, people who aren't fans of Doctor Who, uh, identify him. So I think there's that feeling of coming home when when you do watch episodes with him as 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 the main. Uh, as as the lead, so I really love the way that Lala and Tom are matching uh, with their outfits. Uh, Lala, a few times throughout the series, uh, has a cream version of whatever Tom is wearing, which I really like, and I like the unison and the kind of teammate kind of side of that. And it's it's really nice to see the way they play off uh, in State of Decay be- between um, Camilla and Zargo because they they move in unison and their their outfits are, are very similar so it's 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 really interesting it's like watching two teams <laughs> play against each other <laughs> like the goodies and the baddies and i uh, the a great thing about this story is it's it's just showcases how the doctor uh, improves the society or makes the place uh, that he leaves better so when he leaves the township, he fixes the old computer system from the Hydrax uh, spaceship for them, and that means that they can move forward as a society and they can um, start learning and, and reading again and, and you know fulfill a, a better destiny than being stuck under the thumb and, and essentially giving them freedom, which is uh, you know something that the Doctor has always fights for, is to give someone... Um, 
the right to be themselves and and to be the potential, uh, the true potential of who they're meant to be. And it, he always leaves it in a very light-hearted way he, as well. You know, he just kind of swans on in and swans on out mm-hmm. with a big smile on his face. And and you know, for him, it's just a small gesture, but for that planet that he's left, he's completely changed their future. Thank you very much, Lisa, sister of mine. Um, I'll be seeing you on Christmas Day. Um, I'm so happy we got a chance to actually have her on the show. We've been talking about it a long time ago, way back actually, I think, in two months. Cybermen were sort of planning and scheming. It didn't quite happen, but it's happened today. So Great to have her. Yeah. Awesome. Lovely. Oh, uh, on that note, it seems that our mysterious figure in white has reappeared in the doorway. What is he doing? Floating towards us. Uh, Oh, he seems to be beckoning to us? A beckon? I don't like a beckon. Oh, he's he's floating to the couch. He's just sitting sitting down. Oh, Colin, Colin, ahoy, ahoy! He was the watcher all the time. <laughs> yeah, it was me. You got me. <laughs> I wasn't. Creepy. I wasn't beckoning. I was telling you to scooch over, make some room. <laughs> you, you creepy sort. Welcome back. So we've got Colin, uh, founding member of New to Who, yeah, uh, and podcaster extraordinaire, who's come back to join us. So good to have you back. It's really good to be back. It's great to have you. So uh, you've been away for a while, but you're coming back to join us for our next episode. Which will be... Legopolis. Oh, oh yeah. man. It's going to be so much fun to do that one. Oh, it's, can't wait. I can they wait? We, uh, we couldn't do Legopolis without you, mate. So uh, we're really glad to have you back. It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> 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 so, uh, yeah. So thanks for listening, sweet dogs. I heard something about chestnuts earlier. I suppose I can get a couple of them. Oh, uh, I'm sure we can rustle something up for you, mate. I'm starving. <laughs> In the meantime, uh, thanks so much for listening, sweet dorks. Thank you very much, and have a great Christmas and New Year. Have a great holiday, and uh, we'll see you with Cole uh, in the New Year. See you soon, sweet dorks. Merry Christmas. J.R. Southall from the Blue Box podcast here with us Thanks, today. Thanks, J.R. Thank you for coming in. And if You're you could welcome, tell guys. us, if, yeah. if you could, your personal all-time favourite classic Doctor Who story ever, what would that be? Guys, it's the time monster. Ah, left, left field choice. Left field. That is my choice, and I can't believe you're laughing at me, frankly. <laughs> but I will tell you, seriously, why the time... I Once upon a time, it would have been Robots of Death, City of Death, Talons of Weng Death... Anything with the word death in it. I sat down to watch The Time Monster with two people who absolutely hate Doctor Who. Who don't like any Doctor Who stories. Who hated the new series. Who hated the classic series. Who thought it always took itself too seriously. It wasn't as much fun as it should be. Who hated the performances. Who who hated everything about it. (laughs) Well... Let's not go into that because I don't want hate mail. <laughs> but then I sat down and put the time monster on and they both sat there completely engaged with it, laughing, <laughs> chuckling, caring what happened to the characters, having a whale of a time when the monster shows up and starts flapping about the place. 
That showed me this story through entirely new eyes. And then I went back to it and I thought, actually, when you want to watch Doctor Who, what is it that you want? Entertainment. And there are some people, yeah, some people who want Doctor Who to take itself seriously and to tell a serious story and to be the caves of Androzani every week. Mm. But then there are people like me who just want to be entertained. And my favourite stories are things like Terror of the Autons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, st- stuff that you can smile along with. So what's uh, what's your favourite part of the Time Monster? <laughs> well, I've got to say, it's Stuart and Dr. Ingram. Oh. <laughs> they make such a wonderful couple. People have looked at this story and said, they're terrible, they're dreadful, don't they know what they're doing? <laughs> the answer is, yes, they know what they're doing. Barry Letts has written them as a couple of comedy characters and they are being performed by a couple of actors who appreciate the fact that they're there to be funny. Not entirely funny in a Laurel and Hardy (laughs) kind of a way, but they're there to be the light relief throughout the story and they're just so much fun. I don't get that people don't understand how much fun these two characters are. They're brilliant. I like to think that uh, they're the other neighbours in Robin's Nest. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what they're there to be. And so did you love the Minotaur? Oh, well, it's Darth Vader, isn't it? Who wouldn't possibly love that? It's pretty, pretty layered villain, pretty layered, uh, yeah, <laughs> pretty into that guy. And I love the fact that at the end of this story, it goes off to Atlantis for two episodes. <laughs> if you're seven or eight, yeah. Yeah. Doctor Who, isn't that the most exciting thing? But the absolute best single moment is this sto- in this story is the window cleaner coming down <laughs> off the ladder. <laughs> and the civil servant not caring, just walking by. <laughs> A tale for our times. There are some terrific... The idea of the master using this machine to bring things out of the past to attack unit. Fantastic. Yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot of fun, if nothing else. I'll give you that. <laughs> Might not perhaps be quite my favourite story of all time. <laughs> no, i got to say, if you're in the right mood for it, the Time Monster is actually yeah. an absolute barrel of love. It is, it's a hoot. Ah, oh, wonderful. All right, JR, thank you so much again. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, there you go, the Time Monster, JR Southall's favourite ever personal all-time classic Doctor Who story. <laughs> Darn tootin'. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, well, we're going to hit pause there, and that's that's perfect.